Hi, I'm BJ Council, founder of UN50. As a retired police officer and executive, this job led me to my life's purpose. I served humans experiencing varying levels of crisis, trying to get jobs, housing, educational needs, health care. But due to personal barriers or overworked systems, these humans aren't able to obtain life's simple goal of just being stable. I believe if basic human needs are met, the need for law enforcement interactions are lessened. So welcome back, everybody. This is UN50. We're out of Durham, North Carolina. And I hope things are well. Thank you for those that are returning to, to this podcast and for those of you who are joining us for the first time. Uh, this podcast is part of the UN50, and we call it Your Question is Your Power. And what we do here is hopefully try to help community members um, understand the importance of asking the right questions of their local law enforcement agency uh, or any elected officials and how data and analyzing that can be beneficial into those questions that you ask and getting the information that you feel that you need from that to help make what they do transparent to you. So that's what we do here on this particular podcast. You can look at, uh, listen to some of our earlier, a couple of our early ones that kind of give you more details as to what we're trying to do here. Uh, because someone told me that um, crunching numbers and analyzing is a niche and not a lot of people kind of know how to do that and ask those questions. And if you're paying attention in this country, anything always has, well, what do the numbers say? And that's kind of where we, we want to go with that. So we our guest tonight is Bob Scales, who is a uh, founder, uh, co-founder and CEO of Police Strategies, LLC. And I'll get to him in just a second. And then my co-host, uh, our finesse, Reno Rivera and Kelly Childress. So I'll let Kelly introduce herself real quick. Hi, um, my name is Kelly Childress. Um, I am a graduate from USCG in the criminology department. Um, my focus was sociology. Um, I currently work with um, incarcerated individuals, helping them find employment. So that's a little bit of background from me. <laughs> thanks, Kelly. Finesse. Hi, thanks for having me back, BJ. Uh, my name is Finesse Marina Rivera. I have my master's in forensic psychology. Um, I primarily work as a data analyst within the crim criminal justice system, specifically looking at uh, criminal justice um, reform. Um, I worked for institutions such as um, the DC Police Department, as well as the FBI. And I'm currently um, working as a consultant as a data analyst as well. Cool. Thanks. I appreciate that. All right, Bob, uh, Mr. Scales, thanks again for joining us. And again, like I said, he is a co-founder and CEO of Police Strategies of LLC. And he uses data science and technology to help law enforcement uh, implement effective policies, training programs, and accountability system. And obviously, when I saw accountability system, I was like all over that because that's kind of where we are in this climate. Uh, so as you introduce yourself, Bob, and talk about what you do, I want you to talk about, obviously, your, your company, but I also want you to talk about your police force analysis system, and then we'll kind of get into the meat of the conversation. Thanks again for joining us. Well, well, thanks so much for having me. And um, I guess I'll start by giving a little background on how I ended up here. Um, so I was a, a prosecutor in Seattle for in the 1990s. And then I worked for 14 years for the city of Seattle uh, as a public safety policy advisor to several mayors. And then I was in the city attorney's office as the director of government affairs. And I was there in 2011 when the Department of Justice uh, came in and did their pattern practice investigation of Seattle PD. 
And um, that ended up in a consent decree that the department's still under. And um, then the mayor appointed me to be the compliance coordinator to oversee the reforms. And I left the city in 2014 and formed police strategies with some former colleagues from Seattle PD. And we really wanted to focus on uh, use of force because, and, and this was sort of taking the lessons learned from the, the DOJ consent decree, which is that nobody knows anything about use of force because there's no data. Um, and so we really wanted to develop a, a system for law enforcement that they could um, really do a deep analysis of how their officers are using force um, and use that to improve their policies and training and accountability systems, as well as uh, educate the community. So what about this? Is that part of the police force analysis system? Is that what that is? Yeah, yeah. So we, we call it the, the police force analysis system. So okay. so basically what we do is we, because there is no comprehensive database on use of force, no, no department has a great, you know, they have basic databases, but in order to really analyze um, a use of force incident under the Graham v. Connor standards, which is the 1989 U.S. Supreme Court case by which all use of force is judged and you, to determine if it's justified or excessive, um, you need to collect a lot more information, not only what the officer did, but what the subject did, what led to the use of force, what happened after the use of force. And so we collect up to 150 different data variables on each incident. And we get that information from the officer narrative statements and the incident report itself. So it's a it's a pretty time-consuming, labor-intensive effort, but it's yeah. the only way to get the data we need to fully analyze the incidents. You just did a research, and we're gonna. I think what I'm gonna do is just we're gonna talk about that at, at the end about the use of force research paper that you just did, a research that you just you guys just put out. But I, the thing that we want to talk about right now is the data. Um, because that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to help folks ask the right questions of law enforcement. So one thing that I've seen you write about a lot is just counting the number of vehicles that are being stopped by law enforcement in the community and just gauging that number by you stop X amount of number of black folks, you stop the X number of white folks. And you're saying, if, I, if I'm reading your stuff correctly, that that's just not that doesn't really tell you the big picture if I'm if I'm interpreting what I'm reading. Is that is that correct? Am I in, in the uh, ballpark? You, you are. You are. Okay. I mean, basically, so I the, want to, yeah. explain to yeah. explain why explain why the community member says you stop this black folks this many times this way and why that is not a good analysis to determine how the agency is operating in their community. Yeah. So th there are a lot of limitations. Uh, from just collecting and analyze quantitative data alone. So if you're just looking at numbers, the numbers are not going to tell you um, if the officer is biased. The, the numbers are not going to tell you what, the, what the, the interaction was between the officer and the person stopped. It's not going to tell you about their demeanor and their professionalism and, and so forth. The numbers are just going to count things, to count the number of times things happen. And so what the, the problem that is, has been happening in, in the media and, and some legislators and, and different activist groups is that they're taking these numbers and they're reaching, uh, they're drawing uh, 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 causation. And they're saying, well, these, these numbers or these disparities exist because of something. And... When, when there's no no evidence that 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 
you know, A causes B. It's just that there's a correlation between the two. And so we know, for example, that there are significant racial disparities when you compare uh, police activities, whether it's stops or searches or arrests or uses of force, and the po underlying population. And so there's no dispute that there are disparities, particularly for African-Americans and, and uh, Hispanics and Native Americans, depending on the jurisdiction. There's also a lot of underrepresentation in police activity for Asian-Americans. And so um, the, the issue isn't, do these disparities exist? They do. The question is why? And once you are able to answer why, then, then you'll know, well, what can we do to reduce those disparities, if anything? And so oftentimes what happens is, is that the, the assumption is, is that most or all of the disparities are due to police bias. And, and so if you see, you know, 10% of your stops are, are African-American and only 1% of your population is African-American, oh, well, that, that disparity is 100% due to police bias. And you can't make that causal connection. Uh, the numbers don't, don't, don't do that. And so it's, it's correlation, but not causation. And so what you need to do is to go beyond uh, just looking at simple population to looking at, at a, a more reasonable benchmark. It's all about picking the right benchmark. And so for example, for, for uses of force, uh, what we use as a benchmark are arrests. And so, so uh, because almost all uses of force is associated with arrest. So the population doesn't have anything to do with policing activity. So the population includes you know, nursery school students who, who are, very unlikely to be stopped by the police. It also includes senior citizens who are in nursing homes who are very unlikely to be stopped by the police. So why would you use population as a benchmark? And so when we look at use of force, the best benchmark are arrests. And so, because that's your population of people who are at risk of having force used against them. And when we compare um, uh, uses of force with arrests, the racial disparities go away. So if 10% of your arrests are African-American, typically 10% of your uses of force are African-American. And so we, we don't send, tend to see these disparities when you pick a more appropriate benchmark. We also need to look at disparities by gender and age because we see disparities there. So males are much more likely to be stopped, arrested, and have force used against them by the police than females. And individuals between 18 and 29 are much more likely to interact with the police than juveniles or senior citizens. So the question is, are the police biased against males? Are the police biased against 18 or 29 year olds? Or is there something else going on in the di dynamic that's causing these, these disparities? And we certainly know that males are more likely to commit criminal acts than females. And 18 to 29, you know, uh, young adults are the most likely to be involved in criminal activity than juveniles or senior citizens. So you have to look at, at all the possible factors that can come into play with these racial disparities including police bias. I mean, that's certainly a factor. I, I would never say that police bias doesn't exist, but it's probably not the major driver of these disparities when you look at disparities by income, unemployment, housing, education, uh, healthcare. We see racial disparities throughout our society, and a lot of those factors drive criminal behavior. Well, yeah, works for me. You guys got any, anything? I mean, it just makes perfect sense. But 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 how does the community 
I mean, how how the community members are going to know that that I mean those numbers what you just explained to us. A community member is not they're going to just run with that number. The you stopped a bunch of African Americans mm -hmm. versus whites in this community. So how how do we how do we help them understand that? I mean, finesse and Kelly. I'm trying. You, you know what I'm trying trying to figure mm -hmm. out because our goal is to help them understand. <laughs> You, you, yeah, those are numbers, but we want you to look at the, the true numbers in order to hold your agency accountable. So, I mean, how how does how does that work for us, for the community? Well, well, one thing I I am a big fan of is the um, in in recent years the FBI has been tra transitioning to a new data system for uh, uh, criminal statistics. It's called NIBRS, the National Incident Based Reporting System, and so. The old system just counted the number of crimes that people were reporting. The new system collects demographics, age, race, and gender on crime victims. And it collects demographic information on crime reported crime suspects, so age, race, and gender. And this has nothing to do with the police. So mm -hmm. this is what the community is reporting, crime victims and reported crime suspects. And then it also has arrests by age, race, and gender. And so when you look at the demographics of victims, we see significant racial disparities. So African-Americans are many times more likely to be a victim of particularly a violent crime uh, than other racial groups. And, and also African-Americans are more likely to be reported as a crime suspect by the community uh, than other racial groups. And the police have nothing to do with those numbers, right? This is all coming from the community. So we, when we start to look at the racial disparities about, okay, who is, who is being a victim of crime? Who is being reported as a crime suspect? That matches very closely with who is being arrested, um, which is what you would expect because the police are looking for individuals that have been reported as a crime suspect. Right. And so when you look at, when you compare a, a, a better benchmark, which is reported crime suspects rather than the underlying population. So the question is, well, why are African-Americans reported by the community more often as a crime suspect? And it's obviously not because of the color of their skin. It's because of, again, income, poverty, housing, all these other factors that we know they're racial disparity. So if you're if you're operating at a disadvantage in society, you're more likely to engage in criminal behavior. So if we want to reduce racial disparities in policing, we have to address the underlying causes and we have to invest in not not spend hundreds of millions of dollars on police training and more IT systems and everything else to reduce the racial disparities and implicit bias training and all that kind of stuff. We need to invest in the communities um, so that there are, is less criminal behavior going on. And so provide more better housing, provide jobs, you know, provide better healthcare education systems that will reduce the racial disparities uh, more than anything you can do with the police. All right, Kelly and Finesse, because I, I'm, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I want to break that down to so, so our, you know, for our community members. I mean, I, I heard it. I, I just, I'm thinking in my head how to say uh -huh. that. I mean, I'm not saying that the people who listen don't didn't get it, yeah. but uh -huh. you know, do you, do you know what I'm saying, Finesse? I mean, I'm just Kelly. I mean, you guys take, yeah. take, a, shot yeah. take a shot at that. Um, <laughs> so I was thinking about something and um, just bringing it back to. I remember in. 
we started talking about like asking these questions and what questions to ask um, your community or your government officials about the data that's being collected. And so I was like, the simple questions when you're reading an article, what are you asking? Who, what, when, where, why, and how? And so those are questions that you can ask your data or the information that you're receiving from the media platforms and just ask yourself, for example, like who is providing the data? So the company, the agency, um, do they have ulterior motives? Who's collecting the data? Where's the data coming from? Um, what are they talking about? Um, what do I already know about the information? And just kind of thinking about what your information, the information that you already have about what is being asked. Um, and then when, so when, what year was the data collected and where, what geographical location. So you can start there by asking those just critical thinking questions about the information that you're receiving, which then kind of will lead to then you asking um, your, what question you'll know what questions to ask your government officials, if that makes sense. It does. So starting, I think that's a good starting place to just question the information that you're receiving. Mm-hmm. Okay. No, I mean, Kelly, you make you make a great point. Um, just to add on to that, Bob, though, I, I would be lying if I didn't say like this, the hair kind of stood on the back of my neck when you mentioned NIBRS, because that's been just a whole, <laughs> a whole, a whole mess for the government, you know, working on that for seven years, you know, putting all of these millions of dollars into a platform that's barely being used. I know back in 2021, even we were receiving, uh, seeing California, New York, these major you know, institutions not even providing their data because we we all know that's voluntary, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I I also feel as though, you know, when when speaking about this, we need to take a step back and talk about, you know, how valid the data even really is. Going back to what Kelly had mm-hmm. just said about asking these types of questions, but at the same time, I, I it makes me wonder how we can have a larger discussion about how our community can understand the data or even where to start. I mean, that's, I think that's the bigger, the bigger conversation here is to really understand like how they're even supposed to know how to, you know, ask those questions with Kelly, like what you just said, like, that's not intuitive just for anyone, you know, for us, it's like an everyday run the mill thing. Um, But I think the bigger question is, you know, how to get our community to really understand it and how to utilize it um, and take a step back and, you know, be able to apply everything that we just talked about, including what Bob said, which was, it made complete sense. and was, thank you so much for mm-hmm. that. That was like, that was yeah. mind blowing actually. I was like, huh, I never mm-hmm. really thought about it that way. Yeah. Yeah, um, well. But, you know, it also links back to you, BJ, about what you talk about, what you preach about how important education is and housing and everything we've also talked about in our previous sessions. So I, I kind of want to talk, I, I'm with Finesse, I'm sitting here going, wow, Bob, that was awesome. And I kind of want to make sure that, I want to say what you said, but I want to make sure I'm saying it the way I heard it. Because basically what I heard was that our community, the Black community, we're victims. And then and then the victim, we're victimized by, we're calling in the crimes. So that means we're, we're calling police officers in because we're victims of a crime. And then the persons that we're describing as to who victimize us, more often than not are African-American. So in in order, the use of force and the engagement or the interaction is because we're calling police into our communities because we're victimized. And then the, the individuals who are victimizing us 
by African-Americans. And then we use that data to start looking at everything else, you know, the arrest and use of force and those types of things, but also understanding that our community is generating a lot of those numbers. Yeah, and, and, and uh, also it's, yeah, exactly. And, and the, but the, the other thing is, is that the numbers, there's, there's still limitations on what we can tell from the numbers. So, so for example, the numbers are gonna, not gonna tell us if the officer used justified force or right. excessive force. Right. And so we have to combine the sort of quantitative analysis with, with a qualitative analysis. So we, 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 we can't just say, you know, oh, there's no disparity here, therefore there's no problem. Um, because you can have no disparities and still have a problem with use of force. Right. So so even though your 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 racial disparities might not be there, your officers may be routinely using unjustified force. Right. And so so you can't just rely on, on the quantitative data. Um, and and it so it, it's it's it is complex to try to because part of the problem is that the media in particular now has has really simplified things. I mean, I've seen so many headlines that just read, you know, uh, blacks are five times more likely than whites to be stopped by the police. And so that immediately, you know, conjures up, okay, well, that's because of profiling or, or bias or racism or something like that. And, and there's no, never any attempt to understand why those disparities exist. But, but the, the common assumption now uh, is that the police are there, there is widespread bias in policing and that is what's driving the numbers. And, we need to to really step back and look at all these other factors, such as victimization and reported crime suspects. But also, this isn't about sort of letting the police off the hook. We also have to really scrutinize whenever the police do use force. I mean, it should be heavily scrutinized, and and in in most cases it is. Um, but for example, like the the you know there are about between 1,100 and 1,200 officer-involved shooting deaths a year. And that number has not changed in the last 20 years. It, it varies between 1,100 and 1,200 every year. And that's despite consent decrees, state legislative reform, all sorts of new training programs, technology, less lethal weapons. You still have this, this, this uh, uh, same amount of officer involved shooting deaths. And, and many people will say, well, this is too high. This is this is just too high. There should be many, many less, and there, the police must be doing something wrong. But every year, less than two percent of those officer-involved shootings, which are all heavily scrutinized by prosecutors and the media and so forth, less than two percent are found to be unjustified or unlawful. And and there are about twenty-five to thirty officers who are prosecuted in the country each year for unlawful uses of force, and the conviction rate is is even lower than that. Um, but based on those numbers, it seems like the system is working at holding officers accountable. Um, that doesn't mean that there are, I mean, these are all going to be judgment calls too, and it's going to depend on your policies and, and your training, but it doesn't appear that we have this massive number of incidents where there's unjustified shootings where the officers are not being held accountable, and and because the numbers just haven't haven't changed that much over the years, and 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 despite all of our efforts at reform and civilian oversight and everything else, the numbers are pretty much the same. So, 
and when you look at the uh, the data, because there are some uh, media outlets like the Washington Post and the Guardian newspaper and mapping police violence and fatal encounters that have uh, gathered data from public sources because the federal government won't release any of their data. Um, but um, the you know when you when you look at that data, it's 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 amazing how little things change over time despite all these other external factors that have been trying to change policing. And so that sort of suggests to me that there are other factors going on, particularly, you know, suspect behavior. If, if almost all your use of deadly force is found to be justified, then that means that it's that the officers are, are routinely facing or regularly facing some kind of deadly threat where it's justified to use deadly force. And so, and uh, just to get, just jump a little bit to Finesse's point about um, NIBRS. I, I totally agree. I mean, it, it, the bad thing about NIBRS is that not all agencies are participating. And one of the things I, I push as hard as I can with all the law enforcement agencies that I talk to is you have to report to NIBRS. And police are their own worst enemy when it comes to data and transparency. Yeah. Um, it's like pulling teeth. Even when I worked in the mayor's office in Seattle, I couldn't get data from the police department. Mm -hmm. uh, and, 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 and it's, it's, it, 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 it hurts them so much because other people will get data on them and they'll come up with their own analysis and their own conclusions. And the police department's left, you know, saying, Oh, I, I, that's not right. Mm -hmm. yep. So, so there's, there's absolutely no way the only way that data can hurt you is if you're doing something wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so there's, there's zero reason in this, particularly in this day and age uh, to, to not disclose as much as possible about what your officers are doing. Um, and, and, and in the end it will help to, that will help to educate the community and, and, not just how many times do officers use their taser, but how many, you know, why are officers using their taser? What are these, what are the situations where tasers are used? Um, what was the justification for using the taser? What were the results of the taser injuries and so forth and, and uh, all types of use of force. So, so it, it, if I mean, like, like for example, California, almost very few agencies in California report to NIBRS. So they're just like a black hole for data in this. But Washington State's very good about reporting to NIBRS, and most agencies do. And I, we can learn so much about what police are doing and why they're doing it in Washington that we can't in California. So real quick, I, I know uh, Kelly and Vanessa have something, but that that's that's part of the whole community, the community members that are listening. You can ask that of your agency. Why aren't you reporting this? And and let your elected officials. You know, talk to them about how important it is for them to report what's happening. I mean, what you know, what kind of use of force reports are you doing? Your your professional standards reports, those types of things. Those are questions that you have the right to ask of your law enforcement agency. So don't don't take that. And just real quick about the Washington Post. I'm actually uh, Kelly and uh, Finesse. No, I've been looking at Washington Post in the year 2020. I'm looking at 2019. Uh, 2020, there are 1019 that were killed. And you're right. The media use that and pushes it out there and they're like, they killed a thousand nineteen nineteen people. But yeah, already I found a hundred of them. The bad guy pointed the gun at the officer first. So what, you know, come on now, what are you supposed to do? He pointed a gun at the officer. And like you said, and they're justified. So Pete, so the media kind of portrays the officers killed a thousand folks, but when you start getting in town down to the nuts and bolts of that, they're justified. You might not like it, 
but it's justified based on the laws of the, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So one of my one of my big pet peeves with the with the federal government and the FBI is that is that uh, when when James Comey was director of the uh, uh, FBI, he started the um, use of force national use of force data collection, and um, the the whole goal was to make uh, deadly force and serious bodily injury data available to the public, and so. They've collected data from uh, it, it's it's only about forty percent of agencies, but you know seven or eight thousand agencies now, and they have a lot of data, and they refuse to release it. Wow. Um, so so you mm -hmm. had like a massive effort by law enforcement. You have an electronic data system, and you have an electronic database full of use of force, deadly force data, and serious bodily injury that that would would. You know, because the Washington Post and all these other, they're just crowdsourced from media, right? There's there's no way to check the accuracy of the data. But here's right. an official data source of, of uh, deadly force data that, that they're sitting on and, and refusing. And I did a FOIA request and they said uh, they, they denied my request. And then I appealed and I won my appeal. And then they said, OK, it will take 7,422 days uh, to get you the database. Wow. And 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 so so the politics that must be involved in in creating this national database and wow. not releasing any data is just uh, mind blowing. Wow. So what day are you on now, Bob? May I ask? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's, it's uh, two hundred and forty. I think I've got like five or six years left to wait. Oh but I, I still haven't. I just haven't gotten around to filing my FOIA lawsuit to try to speed things up a bit. But they said it was really funny because they said, "Well, if you reduce your request to a hundred records, we can do it in six months." And I'm like, "Well, what's a hundred? Hundred records is not." But they have a database. They have an electronic mm -hmm. database. It should be pushing a button. And I said, I want, just give me the electronic data. I don't want, I don't want printouts or anything. Just give me the electronic database. And it's, it's, wow. but again, there's no other, there's no other use for this data except for mm -hmm. to make it available to the public. That's what it was designed to do. And, and what I don't understand is they make all the NIBRS data. I can download an entire state's worth of NIBRS data mm -hmm. and it's fantastic. But the, the use of force, they, they, they produced four charts uh, with their data and put that on their website and the charts don't even have any numbers on them. They're just percentages. So you don't even know what, what the numbers are. Oh. Uh, but it's, uh, the, the, that's the other problem with all of this stuff is the politics that are involved in, in policing now are, are mm -hmm. really frustrating. Well, speaking of politics, um, when it comes to the policing, which is ridiculous, I've, I've noticed that you've been posting quite a bit about uh, consent decrees uh, the DOJ really is holding up a lot of mm -hmm. things for police reform. I'm sorry for our listeners, DOJ is the acronym for Department of Justice. But I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about that um, and how that's really um, putting a stain on what we're trying to do reform-wise. Sure. So I, I, when I was a prosecutor and, and I worked as a public safety policy advisor, I mean, I was actually a special assistant U.S. attorney for a while uh, handling gun crimes in the U.S. attorney's office in Seattle. And I had a fantastic relationship with DOJ and, and we worked on many projects together. Um, I would frequently go to conferences and meetings in D.C. Um, it was it was great. And then when 
in 2011, the, the Department of Justice, the Civil Rights Division in the Department of Justice, which is very separate from all the other uh, FBI, ATF, et cetera, but they launched a pattern of practice investigation. And so then I was I was assigned to represent the city. And I thought, OK, and everybody in Seattle thought, oh, it's it's OK, because we're Seattle was always touted as one of a model agency where we, we, we did lots of stuff with de-escalation and crisis intervention training, community policing. I mean, we were just we were just top top of the top of the heap. And so so we were not worried about the DOJ um, investigating. And I was so disillusioned by the whole process uh, because it was 100% political, had nothing to do with policing reform. Uh, it, it had, to, it, it, I mean, the, the, the U.S. attorney who sort of launched the investigation ended up becoming the Seattle mayor and then tried to get out of the consent decree that she imposed. I mean, there was so much politics involved. And, and I just got, I, 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 it's one of the reasons I sort of left government. I became so disillusioned with the process and being lied to and being deceived and manipulated and, for for political uh, reasons, and it had nothing to do with policing reform. And so, so when the when the the the, the DOJ um, released their findings, they they did a they always do a press conference. They always do a national press conference and get you know it's all about the all about the press. And so so they basically investigated us for about eight months, and it was all super secret. They wouldn't tell us anything. And the night before their press conference, they asked the mayor and the chief to come to the U.S. Attorney's office, and they said we're going to find a pattern of practice tomorrow and we're doing a national press conference. And we, we all went nuts and said, what's going on. You didn't talk to us or anything. And so then they, they said all these things about uh, Seattle PD and all the things that were wrong. And we said, okay, you, you say that what they said was that 25% of all of our uses of force were excessive or unnecessary and unconstitutional. And we said, all right, you, you have, you looked at about 1200 cases, show us the cases that you say are unconstitutional. And we'll see if because we, we've reviewed them all and we don't we don't we didn't find 25 percent, uh, maybe two percent were out of policy. But and they said, no, we won't we won't tell you any case. It's all all secret, all all, you know, confidential investigation. And then and then we said, well, OK, so you won't show us the cases. Uh, you won't show us how you came up with that number. Um, give us your list of recommendations of reforms and we will implement every one of them without question, guaranteed. And they said, no, 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 we have to force you. We have to force you to reform. And, and you can only do that with a monitor and a million dollars a year and a federal judge, and you can't voluntarily reform. And, and so, so oh, no. it, was, it, was, it was just the worst thing. And then, um, so we went back and forth for about eight months and you know, the mayor and the city council were at odds because the city council wanted the consent decree. The mayor didn't. The police chief didn't want it, but the city attorney did. And and in the end, it was a political decision to sign the consent decree, because if the mayor didn't sign it, then the city council president said he would sign it. And and so so after it's been uh, 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 11 years, the city spent more than 200 million dollars. Um, the 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 consent decree is still ongoing. They've they've eliminated some aspects of it, but racial disparities have increased, skyrocketed, um, and crime has skyrocketed. the The department is at its lowest staffing levels in history. Um, 
nobody wants to be a Seattle police officer because of all the, the onerous, I mean, basically consent decrees are about reducing the amount of policing. That's all they're about. Reduce the number of stops, reduce the number of arrests, reduce the number of uses of force, reduce the number of compliance. And so there's no more proactive policing that goes on in Seattle. It's all reactive. And this is the same in every single consent decree city. And so there is no city that has benefited from a consent decree and they've all suffered immensely. And that's sort of one reason. I mean, I could talk all all day about <laughs> consent decrees, but that's why I post about it all the time on LinkedIn because there's so much misunderstanding and misconception about what a consent decree is and and what it can do and and the, the harm that that results because you've got basically lawyers coming in both from the monitoring team and and the DOJ and the federal judge basically running a police department without any experience or knowledge of policing or public safety and they don't care about the community community doesn't matter at all it's all about controlling the department and getting those numbers down as much as possible wow thank you for that um <laughs> that's really why I, I brought it up is just because this you know also connects back to data and you know hearing you saying that they don't care, care about the communities at all just hopefully this they don't, they don't care about data either they, they right, yeah data. right like yeah, it, you yeah. know and, and that's the thing hopefully someone who's listening to this who may unfortunately be in this situation being in one of those communities can definitely listen to this and say hey go to the department go to who whoever you can to say we need to be start collecting data about this to change things so thank you for that so also, because I was going to ask Bob back, but since we're doing it, Bob, you may not have to come back. So we're talking about a consent decree because I was going to wait that forward. But <laughs> I appreciate, thank the finesse. I'll, let's just stick with that for just a second, though. Let's talk about, you said the community is not involved. So once it's public that DOJ is here and they do their, you know, you, you what is, what are you, they, they find out there is some issue, right? Once they find out there is some issue, there's there is no real need. They can just tell us what those issues are. And as a community, can the community say, elected official, city manager, let's just deal with what they found out. Don't sign anything with them. Is that is that a possibility? Is that something that our community members can know that that is something they can ask for and require ask of their elected official if the Department of Justice comes in, finds out the dirt if there is dirt but not sign a contract, let them come in and do the work, that the community has to be involved because obviously the community knows their local law enforcement. So I just want to make sure that the community knows they have the power to at least say to the folks, no, we don't want you here. Thanks for what you found out. We'll take care of it. That's exactly right. Because, And that's what <laughs> people don't understand is that the Department of Justice has no power over local law enforcement. They cannot force cities or counties to do anything. What they do is they issue a findings letter and they say, we find a pattern practice of unconstitutional policing. And then they basically coerce the city into signing a consent decree. If a city says, no, I won't sign the consent decree, then the DOJ has to take them to federal court and they have to prove by a preponderance of the evidence that there is a pattern or practice and DOJ has never been able to do that. And there's only been one county, oh. Alamance County, North Carolina, the Alamance County Sheriff, they found a pattern or practice of biased policing. Mm -hmm. And the Alamance County Sheriff said, I'm not signing a consent decree. And so DOJ took this little tiny county to court 
And it was like 20 DOJ attorneys against the, the one county attorney. And, <laughs> and DOJ lost big time because oh. they, they presented mm. zero evidence that there was, there, there was biased policing going on. And so DOJ is terrified about going to court. So they have to they, right now what they're doing is they're going to the mayors and they're saying before they release their findings, they're getting the mayors to sign an agreement to agree to a consent decree so that there's so that there's no sort of risk that they might wiggle out of it. Um, but the other piece of it in terms of the community piece in Seattle, for example, the, the mayor wanted you know, Seattle's all about process and community involvement. And so the mayor got included in the consent decree, a community police commission. Uh, I think they have about 13 members. And so the community police commission was supposed to be the community sort of advisor input into the consent decree. And basically they were at war or still are at war with the U S attorney because, because again, DOJ doesn't care. The only, the only time DOJ cares about the community is when they're trying to get evidence uh, and complaints about the police department. So that's when they want to talk to the community, give us all the dirt, and then we'll ignore you. And so the Community Police Commission, and, and, and there are a lot of news reports about their grievances now with DOJ and the consent decree, and they say that it's been a total waste of time and money, et cetera, but they're completely ignored by, by the federal judge and the monitor and DOJ. And so they'll get it all, they'll agree to whatever to get the consent decree in place, but the community is totally shut out. And, and uh, once the consent decree is signed, because once you sign once the mayor signs, it's you're handing over the department to the federal judge, the monitor, and DOJ. You you've lost, you know, you're you're signing your city, and 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 it will last more than a decade and cost more than two hundred million dollars for a major city. And and I just don't have anything good to say of. Yeah, I'll say, how, you, how you really feel about all that, Bob? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, 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 yeah. I, I complain much too much on LinkedIn. That's sort of I, I definitely have a reputation on LinkedIn of being a consent decree. Complainer. I was like, consent decrees. Why don't we talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I know. I appreciate that. I appreciate that for this. Yeah. Uh, look, I, I kind of want to get back just a little bit to, especially these small communities. I know you, the work that you your your company does, going in and talking to the the agency to try to figure out well how they can better have accountability with the stuff that they track. Is your from your perspective, is there anything that we can tell the little you know the little Mayberries and you know the little small towns from your perspective? What what are just some little simple things that they could ask uh, of their agency? I mean, you know, because I had someone ask. They wanted to know of this little small community. We, so we don't even know about how many complaints the agency gets. You know, so obviously, you know, where I'm from, Durham mm -hmm. kicks out one twice a month or I mean, not twice a month, two times a year, at least in the end of the year to be able to show we had X amount of complaints on use of force or rudeness or whatever. And 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 you, you kind of have an idea. Uh, and people don't know that they can ask for that. So just some real simple stuff for these small communities who, you know, where these community activists are that are trying to, to for whatever reason, in these towns <laughs> that we know mm -hmm. who may be running the some of these communities. And so, how, so what are some of the things from your perspective community members so, that people can ask? 
so so in the past it's it's really only been you know major agencies like like new york in the 1990s new york nypd started did comstat you know which was their big data initiative and so forth and 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 lapd has some in chicago they all have big you know data analytics units and right. dashboards and everything yeah. the great thing is is that in this day and age it's it's so cheap and so easy to put your data online and and you can get um, a, a dashboard software for free um, mm-hmm. or for very low cost. And and the great thing about about dashboards, which is what which is what do we do? We both do both internal and public dashboards, and we just use off the shelf software. And and so an agency can create an interactive because oftentimes uh, people don't know what to ask for. Right? It's it's really hard for but but if it's if it's available in a dashboard format. Then, then you, then the, the community can interact with the data, and so, so they can say, okay, well, I want to see, you know, how many, how many stops are in this month, or have stops been increasing or decreasing, or what is the most common reason that people get stopped, you know, for traffic violation, what, uh, uh, speeding or whatever, and uh, you know, what's been happening with complaints uh, in in my neighborhood or whatever else. And so, so with these dashboards, all you need is a spreadsheet of data, and you can create these very, uh, you know, um, uh, user-friendly, um, uh, useful tools that the community can start. And then, what we found is that once the community starts looking at the data and actually interacting with the data, then they know what to ask for, and they say, "Well, I'd really like to know what this this data isn't here, but I'd like to know, you know, um, so so something about that that that." the data is not there and then it'd be easy to collect and add that to the dashboard. So it's just so easy, so cheap now. And, and so, so my suggestion is, is that, that for smaller communities, if, the, if their department's not providing any data, um, just ask them to say, look, can you, you know, whatever data you currently have in an electronic format, can you just put it on in a dashboard, whether it's stops or arrests or searches or complaints and, and, and just start to, to because to, it's really a, an interactive process it's not like a lot of departments will produce like an annual report mm-hmm. right and it'll just have a it might have a few stats in it and that's not right. you know it's, it's just what the department wants you to see right. um, and there's no way to query that but with a dashboard you say okay well we're going to put our crime stats in a dashboard format for the last five years online and then people will start i mean our, our online dashboards are super popular. I mean, we you have thousands of hits every month and and people, we get a lot of feedback on the dashboards from, from community members about what things they'd like to see and the formatting and so forth. So it, it's a great way for departments to engage um, and to provide their data in a very accessible format. Cool. Good, I mean, I, I'm not even familiar with that. I don't even know what to tell somebody. So I would just say, Ask for dashboard. I mean, is there? A, I, I, just, no, no, my, I mean, I'll try to. Look, I'll look it up. I'll Google it. I'll. I'll, I'll yeah. I'll well, the the, the two most common uh, dashboard uh, software that's out there are Microsoft Power BI and then Salesforce's Tableau, and both of them have very inexpensive or free versions, and you can post anything, any of these dashboards online, because a lot of these smaller departments, that's been the real problem is that they don't have their own crime analysts or data mm-hmm. analyst and they don't have a good IT person or something like that and so it's it's I mean I, I'm not an IT person and I you know I mean 
I, I've, it's so you, it's so easy. It's some of the easiest software I've ever used. And, and um, it's just, it's just making that, that request is, can you put, and, and, and you don't have to ask for any, like, cause every department has some data electronically that they could put in a dashboard format. And so you're not asking them to do any kind of big project or do additional data collection. It's just like, Hey, could you put, and, and, and the easiest stuff is crime data. And a lot of, a lot of agencies will will spend money. I, I think I, I I don't think it's a good use of money, but uh, you know, to to these crime mapping um, uh, programs, and it's just a map with different crimes and everything like that. And it's okay, but it, it's it's sort of complicated. I mean, what you want is a summary of the data, right? You want charts and graphs and trend lines so that you can understand what's happening. The individual location of crimes is not that that interesting or helpful for most people, I don't think, but a lot of that is, is already out there. Okay. Well, cool. I think, you know, it goes to the fact that what Bob said is, you know, when you're asking for it, just walk in, you can literally walk into the department and say, Hey, I'm looking for number of arrests. Do you have a report? Do you have anything online? Mm-hmm. But another point that I want to bring up, Bob, and you mentioned it earlier was FOIA. And as a previous analyst, law enforcement analyst, data analyst for the DC police department, I cannot tell you how much I loathed people and whenever I had a FOIA request. So for those listening, they may not know what a FOIA request is and when it should be utilized. So can you just kind of give a little bit of background about, about that, please? Sure. So so the a lot of states will have um, uh, public records laws. Um, and and depending on what state you're in, um, you know, it, 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 you, you can get a lot of information from the police department, um, from your state public records laws. Um, uh, there's also the federal FOIA, FOIA um, uh, Freedom of Information Act. Um, but the uh, I agree that like and, and a lot of these a lot of these uh, crowdsource sites and like, you know, the Washington Post, Mapping Police Violence, Fatal Encounters, they do a lot of uh, public records requests to get data on on deadly force incidents and so forth. So. If if your department, you know, if if you if you ask nice and say, hey, we'd like to get some more data online, uh, and they say no, we're not going to give you anything, then you could start, you know, filing public records requests, and 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 they may, and and oftentimes what happens is is that if a department gets a lot of public records requests for some type of information. A lot of times they will just post it online because it's easier to post it online than to respond to 100 public records requests. So if they're not being cooperative, you can request that information officially. And if they refuse to give it to you and it's disclosable, then that uh, you know can generate a lawsuit and 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 so forth. And and because there are remedies if they refuse to disclose uh, public records. So depending on what your state laws are. Um, like in California, it's harder than in Washington, for example, to get uh, public records from police. But um, uh, you're right, Vanessa. I mean, it's like you you don't like it's a lot of work for an agency. So if they can avoid the work and just say, OK, we'll just put it online so that everybody can see it, um, that that could be uh, one way to do it. Perfect. Thank you for that. I just want everyone who is listening to know you have rights. You can file a FOIA request. They have to give you that information. So sorry about that, PJ. I just want oh, no, to no, no, no. tip it in there. <laughs> no, no, no. This is your, you know better than I. <laughs> you know better than I. Kelly, you got anything? Um, no, I just wanted just um asking those questions, really kind of just 
um, what to ask when you're getting that information from the media and that kind of thing to just start critically thinking about the information that you're being um, told. Um, and I think that kind of will help because I think when people first see the data, they're like, oh, that that sounds about right. They just take it as word. Um, mm-hmm. And so just kind of encouraging people to start thinking about the information and where it's coming from. And that'll kind of start to help you generate questions to ask your government officials. So just starting there. Cool. Thanks. Um, that's a great point. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I, I just want to, <laughs> I just want to say that that's a great point is that, is that what I always say is that, you know, data is just a starting point, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, data is not going to answer all your questions, but mm-hmm. data can help point you in the right direction mm-hmm. and say, all right, we, we seem to have an issue with, with use of force here because, you know, our, our use of force rates are higher than average or, or, we seem to get a lot of complaints about use of force. Um, and then, and, but you, you have to go beyond the data. You have to, you have to dig, dig deeper and you have to have discussions with the department and, and really dig into, you know, policies and training and why things are the way they are. Um, and, and oftentimes people will just stop at the data and say, Oh, there's a disparity here. Therefore, you know, there must be something wrong. So let's, Mm -hmm. let's pass a new, ordinance or something to try to fix it. So we're almost getting close to it, but I kind of want to touch about what we talked about in the beginning that you you just had this um, research paper that you and your colleagues just released. And we want to talk about that just a little bit. Threat Dynamics and Police Use of Forces is the title of the research. And I, Vanessa, she skimmed it. I've looked through it, spent most of the day kind of going through it. And one of the things that I wanted to talk about and get you to talk about briefly is from my perspective and the work that I do, I really like what you're doing, have done with this and looking at the totality of the what what police officers use, what that looks like uh, in that interaction and the fact that we also have to take into consideration the community member that's involved with that. You know, and 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 what the officer is looking at. I mean, you're looking at an individual who's intoxicated, who could be a threat. But officers are always going to be seeing someone with a gun as a threat, so they're going to act accordingly. Uh, but those are different, and those are, and there can be biases built into that. But there's a process, and there's a perspective of a police officer. You and I may go to the same house, and a guy's intoxicated, and I may interact with him based on some of the stuff that I've done or what I've dealt with individuals who have been intoxicated and know what they're going to do based on that intoxication. If they're emotional, you may have a different way of doing that as well. So it does really filter in to how law enforcement, even though we've been trained the same way. So I really appreciate what you guys are, have done with this research. But I just kind of want to put it out there for folks who understand that, that it's a totality that has to do with the Supreme Court rulings. I'm not going to get into that. But just the fact that we have to remember that there is another individual involved in this. What, what is the person doing? You know, is what is the intent? You know, or, or, are there the opportunity to do something? And those types. It's just it's bigger than just the officer using the use of force, his or her perspective, and then how the person is interacting with that person, and then all these other things that come in. Obviously, race sometimes plays into that. The perspective. You know, seeing a young black youth and making the assumption he or she is older, uh, the body, the size of an individual. I mean, I'm, I'm not exactly a very small person, but I have been in the presence of 200 plus pounds individuals. And so that's a different kind of look for me if I'm a law enforcement officer and the things that I may end up having to do. So 
just kind of talk about that. I don't know whether Finesse and Kelly, if you guys had a time to skim it, Finesse has just skimmed it, but I just kind of want to have Bob kind of talk about it because I'd like, you know, to know that. And at the end of a good, the end of the story is that the body camera, body one camera, reviewing those can complement the use of force and how we do that because now we're not just taking the community members or the media saying the community member did X. We have this on video. We know what the officer did that may have contributed to this interaction going south. And we also have a community member who may have contributed to this incident interaction going south as well. So now everybody gets to have a little sticky. Uh, and so just kind of talk about that for just a few minutes, Bob, if you, if you don't mind. Sure, sure. So use of force is a very complex and dynamic <laughs> event. Um, and there's, there's, it's, it's not just like an on-off switch, uh, use of force, not use of force. And so, so we need to know like everything that led up to the use of force, you know, how long did it take? You know, what was the interaction between the officer and the suspect, you know, before force was used, what was the trigger, right? That, 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 that made, you know, what was it that made that officer decide to use force at that moment? And then once the force starts, what are all the dynamics of back and forth? Because you have to look at the resistance levels and was the suspect potentially armed or armed or how are they resisting physically? Were they just running away or were they fighting the officer? And how long did that use of force go on and how difficult was it for the officer to, to control the subject? What kind of physical tactics or weapons did the officer use? And then what happened after the force? And so, so how were they restrained? And were they, were they, did they have leg restraints? Were they handcuffed? Um, you know, did they continue to resist? Were they injured? Was the officer injured? Were they booked into jail? Were they released? And so, so as I said, we, we collect up to 150 data variables on each incident. And once we look at the sort of totality of the circumstances, we can start to analyze not just how many times did an officer use a taser, but what were all the incidents that led up to that taser use and, and how, how do officers use tasers compared to other weapons and what types of incidents and so forth. And so what we're able to do uh, when we collect all these different data elements is, is we can say, so less, less than 2% of use of force is found to be out of policy. So 98% of the time, the officers following policy every time they used force, following their policies and training. But what we found is within that 98%, there's a huge range in how officers use force. And some of the officers, even though everything's within policy, you know, they may not be behaving exactly how you would like, or certainly not like these officers up here. And, and so the goal is to help the department say, okay, yes, yeah, even though 98% of your, your things are within policy, there are a group of officers here that are higher risk, right? They're, they may be quicker to use force. They may, not, they may not use force as effectively. Like there's some officers that are extremely effective at the use of physical tactics, and they're usually maybe trained in martial arts. And so they can control a subject very quickly with minimal injury, um, with, with very little force at all. Uh, just because they're so skilled at it, and and that's what we see in agencies. Like in, uh, we did a a grant project for uh, 16 agencies in Dane County, Wisconsin, where Madison is, and they have a regional training center, and they really focus on martial arts, um, and they almost never use any weapons. Um, I mean, it's like 
rarely, 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 because they're all very highly skilled in martial arts training. And so, whereas in Washington state, um, there's a heavy reliance on taser. And for whatever reason, the, the state training academy and, and different policies. And so about a quarter of all use of force is a taser in Washington state. Um, and, and, and there are pros and cons to, you know, every type of force tactic. And there's no like one, one size fits all. Um, but it really shows how your, how your training and your policies really do impact how officers behave. And so if you want them to behave in a certain way, then you you equip them the way you want them to behave and you train them and you have the right policies and then you monitor to make sure that they're in compliance. Um, and so so one of one of the things our 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 uh, research papers, we've done a number of different research papers, but the most recent one on, on threat assessment is looking at you know, the levels of threat that the subject proposes. Uh, uh, um, presents to the officer and how those officers react to those different levels of threat. And, and one of the things that we've found is that, is that uh, not only training and policies, but um, uh, experience matters and not just the number of years you're a police officer, but the number of uses of force you've done. So if an officer has a lot of use of force, that's generally a good thing because it doesn't mean that they're using excessive or unnecessary force. What it means is, is that they've been on patrol for a long time and they're making a lot of arrests. And it, we, we've on average about 4% of arrests result in a use of force. You're never going to get hundred percent compliance when you're arresting some uh, a group of people. So if 4% of your, if you're making a thousand arrests and 4% uh, are resisting, then you're going to get a lot of experience using force. And so whereas officers who rarely use force, generally they're they're either newer officers or officers that have been in specialized units or, or that kind of thing or administrative. And when they get on the street and the, the first time you use your taser, you're probably not going to use it as well as effectively as somebody who's used their taser a hundred times before. And so so we can't just look at the number of times things happen. We have to look at is this the most appropriate use of force? And also did the officer the more effective the officer is, once the decision has been made to use force, you want to control the subject as quickly as possible. So if you go in with a very low level of physical force against somebody who's bigger and stronger than you are, chances are you're going to end up getting hurt yourself, hurting the subject, having more officers come in, having to use weapons, as opposed to going in with, you know, it's, 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 I, I couldn't be a police officer. There's, there's, it's too complex for me, for my, for my brain to handle. Like, what's the most, what's the best thing to do in this situation? Uh, right. What, what level of force should I use? Should I use any weapons? You know, at what point should I use force? It's extremely complex. And so, being able to to have the data to show in in this kind of situation or these kind of officers with this training, they're extremely effective at using force and controlling the subject very quickly with a minimal risk of injury. That's that's really what you're going for. You guys got anything? <laughs> no, I just think it's, it's absolutely fascinating. I've never really thought of it. When you, when you start to consider the officer's perspective of a subject being a threat and how that also dictates the, the amount or how often they use, you know, use of force. It's just, it's just really fascinating because it also brings up 
brings to light of, you know, when you, you see an officer who's using too much force, but it's unnecessary, right? Because they're, they're they clearly have the individual, you know, under control. There's no need for mm. the amount of force that they're utilizing. They're no longer a threat. So I, this is just all so complex. It really is complex. Mm-hmm. I'm just taking it all in, but it's, I hate to say it, it's so awesome. Like, I, yeah, and Bob, that, that's saying something to quiet finesse. So I'm just listening. I know. Good, 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 you, good, you've done a lot. <laughs> Kelly, do you have anything? I know, right? I, I just think it's really interesting how you yeah. kind of, um, when I was reading the article, just how it's broken down and there's so many different dynamics. Um, that have to play in a part in just the fact that um, one of the things I was thinking about when I was reading was if there was a way to get, because um, I know a lot of it is based off of narrative experiences from the officers. So obviously the first person that's going to report is going to be the officer that's whose story is going to be told. But I, I don't know, it was just the thought of how do we incorporate maybe the person that was arrested's perspective into that data to maybe even just look at what their perceptions of that officer was. I don't know. Just a thought. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, th- there are, I mean, the, the reason that we focus on, on the um, officer statements and the, and the incident reports is because mm-hmm. that, that is the, 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 the best record that we have uh, of, of the incident that we can get. Now we also have video camera. And, and so, mm-hmm. so the, the, and, and the other thing is, is that the officers, you know, all officers have to sign their statements under penalty of perjury. Um, it has to be reviewed by a supervisor. The, you know, if a complaint is filed, they're going to investigate the whole incident. So, so, so th- it's pretty high reliability in terms of the accuracy. We don't see a lot of, for example, discrepancies in, in between officers and so forth. Now, that, that doesn't mean that there aren't officers that may, you know, lie or, or, or do that kind of thing, but it's pretty pretty low incidence for that. So one of the things that we do do is we we do some uh, auditing with uh, body cam footage where we'll mm-hmm. we'll read the report and we'll we'll code everything based on our criteria and then we'll watch the body cam footage and we'll do the same thing. And 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 see how closely our our coding matches with the with the that's with cool. the written report. <laughs> and one of the things that's really interesting is we we rarely see major discrepancies. But where we do see discrepancies, it's like the, the people who are the trained coders who are reviewing the videos and, and, and me. Um, when I see a situation, I'm much more likely to perceive a threat than the officer is uh, because I'm just watching <laughs> the video and I say, hey, this guy's you know, swearing at me and threatening me and everything else. And yeah. I, I perceive that as a pretty high <laughs> level of threat. Where the officer in their statement, they may not even mention it, mm-hmm. right? Because okay. because they're they're used to it, right? This happens all the time, <laughs> yeah. and so that's where we see the discrepancies: is that the officers are are so sort of desensitized to mm-hmm. a threat that a layperson would think, "Oh, wow, this is a really threatening situation." <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so that's what's been really interesting: is that I think in many ways officers may understate things in their report when they feel threatened it takes a lot to for to make an officer feel threatened i think yeah that's, yeah that's awesome yeah i think that's, that's a good really cool. well, i got a thing that we get wrap it up but i think that's a really good thing because that actually that does play because after a while if you're trained because people cuss at you all the time and they're yelling and screaming at you and you at some point during your career you go 
okay, just blow it off and go ahead and do what you just leave, <laughs> right? Because we don't, we're not receiving that anymore. You know, as a young mm -hmm. officer, I may receive that as a threat or why are you pissing me off? I'm getting ready to snatch you up in the collar. But as we, we mature, <laughs> he says, he run his mouth, just leave the property and I'm not going to put my hands and I don't have to use any force. So, mm -hmm. you know, that, that does have an impact because after a while you do become, especially that verbal stuff. And, and even sometimes people walking up on you, you just feel like that's just part of his or her persona. And it's like, I know when my thresh, when the line, when they've crossed it. And for you, they crossed it early on as soon as their mouth started running your mouth. For me, it just may be different. So that, that you're totally correct on that. That's just how that officer is. So yeah, this has been that's, really- that's yeah, go ahead. I just say one thing. That's a really important point because one of the things I found in the videos, it, it's watching the videos, is that officers get into real trouble when they take it personally, mm -hmm. right? When 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 they get when they get wrapped up, right? <laughs> yeah. And so if you can just blow it off, right? Yeah. I mean, obviously, if it's a real threat, right? You want to yeah. take action, yes. but. When officers get in, it's, it's usually the verbal arguments. When I see officers get into a verbal yeah. argument with somebody, yeah. they tend to use force inappropriately yeah. because they're they're mad, right? Yes. If you get mm -hmm. mad, you're gonna you're gonna yeah. react, you know, yeah. when you when you have to use force. So that's that's a really yeah. important point. Yeah, and and hopefully the you know the BWCs will be able to to, to start showing that, especially for young officers in today, because you know kids today are just sensitive. I mean, words. Yeah. People saying yep. words on videos are getting people killed. So yep. if you got that generation doing that and they got a uniform on, it, yeah, yeah, it could escalate for no reason at all. So yeah. So Bob, I make a, yeah, go ahead. Go I'm ahead. so sorry. I have a quick yeah. confession to make. Um, yeah. I found myself at two o'clock in the morning the other night because I couldn't sleep on YouTube watching body work camera footage. And I agree with Bob that a lot of these people who are walking up to these officers and <laughs> and being verbally abusive and they're just the patience that they have with people is absolutely insane. So I, I can definitely, <laughs> not about working with Bob, but I will say that I've been on YouTube going down a very deep hole watching body work camera footage. So yeah, there's a lot of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. It's like you had nothing else to do, right? Nothing else to do. <laughs> that's funny. Oh, man, Bob, thank you. This has been a lot of help. And I hope um, our listeners have got some information they can use back in their communities and stuff like that. And I really appreciate um, you coming on and, and enlightening us to, to, you know, what to ask, the research and everything like that, and, and the analysis. So that that hopefully will be helpful. So thank well, you so thank much. Thank you so much. Thank yeah. you. It's been really enjoyable. I really, really had a good time. Cool. Thank you. But then you got you want to you want to say goodbye. What you know what you got just on holiday, everybody. <laughs> yeah, just thanks. Thanks everyone for listening to us. Our shenanigans once again. And Bob, thank you so much for coming on. This was a lot of fun and I, I learned a lot. So it was great. great. Thanks. Cool. Kelly. <laughs> yep. Thank you guys for tuning in. Um, and it was great like meeting everybody and just kind of having these good conversations. <laughs> Yeah. And, and again, thank you for listening in to your questions, your power. And if, um, you know, go to my website, my email is there. If you have questions in relationship to you know what you can ask your agency or or things, please, you know, let us know and we'll we'll discuss that. You know, Kelly and, and Finesse, we, we like getting on and chatting. So we would mm -hmm. love to hear from you about that. And, and for those of you first time here, thanks uh, for tuning in. Hope you'll you know join us again. And uh, for those of you that are always listen to us. We really appreciate it. So as always, stay well, stay safe. Peace. <laughs>